remain standing and turn in your Bible uh, to Luke chapter 2. Grab your copy of the Bible. We have some there in the pew if you need one. It's on page 1019 and 1018 of your pew Bible. 1018, 1019 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, probably a passage you've read hopefully this week, maybe even this morning with your children. It's the uh, practice in the Fisher family that the youngest holds a candle as we read the Christmas story, and it represents the gospel going from one generation of our family to the next. And so we read much that leads up to this, but we saved uh, one of the great parts for this morning. We'll begin reading with verse 8, Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come to you as our King of glory and to your Son, our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray now that our glory and excitement in his birth would match that of your angels and that by your Holy Spirit we would be caught up into heaven that we might rejoice in his love and his goodness. Give us then this morning ears to hear the true music of Christmas. Open our hearts, for we do pray it and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you are at all familiar with the Bible, you are probably aware that the Christmas story, the Christmas story comes to us primarily through a series of angelic visits. First, of course, you've got Gabriel, the angel, who visits Zechariah in the temple to announce the birth of John the Baptist, who will prepare the way of the Lord. Later on, the same angel, Gabriel, is sent to Joseph and Mary to instruct them on what is about to happen. In Matthew's gospel, we have the record of Joseph's interview with Gabriel, and Mary's visits with Gabriel and her response are recorded here earlier in the book of Luke. Mary's beautiful response we call today the Magnificat. And it is a mix, actually, of Hannah, 
Hannah's prayer in the Old Testament and a mix of Psalms. The Magnificat is Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord. The first words Mary uttered as she responded to the angel visit. Now, all three of these visits, Zachariah, uh, Joseph, Mary, they're all private. They're all private. Gabriel and one other person. And all three are predictions. Gabriel is telling them what will be, what will happen, and their role in the great salvation that God is bringing. Because we all know and love these three angelic visits, it would be easy to see our text today as a fourth, kind of lump it in with the other three. After all, they all involve Gabriel and other angels, and they're all tied to the Christmas story. However, you shouldn't do that because our text today is a different kind of event altogether. In our passage this morning, Gabriel is not speaking privately. This isn't a one-on-one interview. There are a number of shepherds, and more importantly, this announcement is made uh, not to one person about their role, but to the whole world. Notice what verse 10 says, that will be, this is good news for all people. And then again in verse 14, this news is for all those with whom the Lord is pleased. This isn't a private interview at all. It's something quite different. It's an announcement. Gabriel, you notice in this text, is not predicting anything. No, he is announcing something. He says, I bring you good news, verse 10. And in verse 11, for unto you is born this day, right now, this is happening. This is news. This is not advice. It's not training. It's not personal insight. It is news, good news. It is the gospel. And that is why here, and only here, Gabriel is joined by the hosts of heaven. I think this passage is the natural climax to the Christmas story and its most brilliant moment. If I had to preach one text... For Christmas each year, it would be this one, because here we have the worldwide announcement of heaven to earth that Christ is born. Maybe this is why, uh, maybe this is why Linus recites this passage to Charlie Brown when Chuck asks him in great frustration, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? Up until that moment, Linus is clutching his, his uh, signature blue blankie for moral support in order to cope with his fears. But if you watch the movie again uh, today, just as he begins to recite Luke 2, he drops his blanket and he says, fear not. After he recites our passage, he calmly goes back to Charlie Brown and simply says, this is what Christmas is all about. This morning, I briefly want to go with you through this incredible announcement. More than anything else, the song of Christmas, I think, is condensed in these verses, and I want to hit those notes with you. And so in our singing, we've already kind of laid the groundwork for this, but now I want to look at it in the text. So look with me briefly this morning at what I'm calling the three main notes of Christmas, the three main notes of the Christmas song, or how are we to sing and celebrate Christmas 
as Christians. We need to hit these three notes. The first note, the first up, is glory. Glory. That's the first note of the Christmas song. To get Christmas and to profit from it, you must feel the glory of it. The glory of it. Now, I say feel because the word glory literally means something that is weighty, something that is heavy. It's something that comes over you in the presence of what God has done in Jesus. This is what we were after when we sang, let all mortal flesh keep silence. It's what C.S. Lewis was after when he described the children's first Christmas in Narnia. And he wrote these words, Lucy, he said, felt running through her that deep shiver of gladness, which you only get if you're being solemn and still. A good question to ask ourselves this morning is if we have felt the weightiness of this holiday. Have there been moments, maybe in our sacred concert last week, where we put aside the busyness and the illness and wondered at the glory of God in Christmas? Sadly, this is what our unsaved family and friends can never understand, and they can never help us with it. No amount, no amount of secular Christmas music or office parties can generate this or even contribute to it. You won't get this glory note from rocking around the Christmas tree or roasting chestnuts on an open fire. I like both those songs. I do. But they cannot do this for you. This Christmas note of glory has to be played in church or in the privacy of your own home in a worshipful setting. It can happen when you're curled up with your Bible or when your kids are gathered around you for family worship, but it won't happen in the busyness and bling of American Christmas. You must make space for it. You must make worship space for it. Now you see this note of glory very clearly in our text. Look at verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then a few verses later, heaven is opened up to them, and we read verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying what? Glory to God. The first note in the Christmas song is glory. God's glory is so great and so real that when we brush up against it in life, we react with tremendous fear and wonder. When we read the story of Christmas or we hear the wonderful hymns, we're meant to feel the weight and depth of what is happening Sometimes that glory will actually cause us to fear. It will be overwhelming. And that's what glory did to the shepherds. It made them, to use the words of the old King James Version, it made them sore afraid. Or in Greek, literally, if you translate the original, they feared a great fear. Glory has that effect. But why does God's glory impact us so powerfully? Why were the shepherds so completely overwhelmed? Well, for starters, if you want to understand their glory, you have to understand that the angels are not what you think they are. 
Angels are not naked babies who shoot you with arrows so that you fall in love. They are not guardians for your pets, and they do not sit miniature style on your shoulder when you're deciding whether or not to have your third helping of dessert on Christmas Day. This is not what angels are about. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Angels in the Bible are warriors. Wherever you see in your Bible the word hosts or multitudes of angels, the language in the original is actually the language for armies. They are quite literally warrior priests. Like a priest, they spend all their time in worship and praise around the throne of God. But when they are roused, they are often armed and often extremely dangerous. In our passage, the armies of heaven, the hosts of heaven, have been, just for a moment, let loose on the earth as never before. There's never been a moment quite like this, and there will never be another until Christ's second advent. Normally, the veil that lies between our world and the greater reality of heaven, that veil is kept in place. The angels are there, but we do not see them, probably for our own protection and sanity. But in this watershed moment, a moment when all the hopes and all the fears of all the years are being met, the veil is sort of tugged aside, pulled aside for just a second, so that heaven can invade earth. Why? Because the glory is so great and the angels want to say it. And so years later, many years later, when John the Apostle, Jesus' most beloved disciple, is taken up into heaven, the veil is parted for him and he enters through the open door, holy man that he was, we're told that he fell as one dead and could only get up in the presence of this glory because Jesus came and laid a hand on him and helped him. When the prophet Isaiah, for just a moment, entered the courts of heaven in a vision, he cried out, woe is me, woe is me, and he wants to run screaming out of the room. So too the shepherds were completely overwhelmed when heaven drew near. Now don't miss this. Don't miss this. In none of these situations, the shepherds, John the Apostle, Isaiah, in none of these situations was God particularly angry or bringing anyone near to himself for judgment. These were actually all grace-filled moments. Glory is not being terrified of God. That's not what I'm calling you to this morning. It's not as if God is some dangerous tyrant who might do just about anything. No, glory, though, is about the profound weightiness of God, his splendid holiness, his unfathomable love, his perfect hatred of sin, his works of beauty and of grace. So when we talk about being still before God today and considering his glory, we don't mean terror at his wrath. We mean awe and wonder. Today we have every reason, I could say more reason, to enter into the celebration of glory. In the coming of Christ in Bethlehem, understand this, in the coming of the Lord Jesus in Bethlehem, heaven didn't just come down. God himself came down. 
The angel visitation is incredible. We all wish we could have been there. Heaven draws near. God's glory floods that field. But this is not the ultimate revelation of God's glory. Jesus is. And that's why John wrote those words. The word, he said, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. In the light of such glory, our response to Christmas is joy and pleasure at friends and gifts. But it must be more. It must be heavier than that. It must be awe and wonder. And that's why we sang this morning our first Christmas note. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly minded. We are never meant to get over the splendor of this night in Bethlehem. The greatest surprise in all of scripture is this, that God the Son came down at Christmas. And so our hearts must sing glory to God in the highest and on earth shalom among those with whom he is pleased. The second note of the Christmas song is a note of grace. Glory first, now second, grace. A grace, if you're not accustomed uh, to church talk, is God's love to us, even when we don't deserve it, and when, in fact, we deserve the opposite. If we're honest with ourselves, we actually know this. We all know it. We deserve to be judged and be separated from God, and yet because of grace... We not only avoid judgment, we also get love. God not only forgives us, that's redemption, but he also then does the unthinkable and adopts us into his family. In our text, this grace note is brought out with the wonderful word gospel or good news. You see that in a couple places. Notice, for example, the very first words the angels say to the shepherds in verse 10, fear not, fear not. The angels begin with a word of grace, a word of comfort to sinners. The fear of the shepherds, the terror of the shepherds, of Mary, of Joseph, of John and Isaiah, it all demonstrated something, doesn't it? It tells us that even the best of us even Mary, even John, even the shepherds, even the best of us cannot just come into the presence of a holy, just, and righteous God. And so we need, we need God's first word to, uh, to us to be a gospel word, to be a grace word. Echo, echoing behind this gracious word of fear not, their first words to us, is something I think really ancient and really deep. Back at the very beginning of history, our first parents, you'll remember Adam and Eve, they walked with God in perfect peace or shalom. But remember how right after their first sin, they completely changed. They hid from God. They were suddenly terrified of God. Up to that point, up to the point of sin, God's presence was never a threat but now after sin, when God appears, when God gets close to us, 
It is painful. It is scary unless we have grace, unless we have a covering. So fear not. These are gospel words, words that go all the way back to the beginning and undo an ancient curse. But that's not the end of it, is it? The grace note keeps playing, and I think it reaches its, its loudest, really, its most concentrated form in verses 10 and 11. The angel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you a gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You notice what the angel says there. Instead of using Jesus' name, he never uses Jesus' name. The angel instead gives the titles that Jesus is going to have. He could have said, rejoice, Jesus is born today, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives three titles and they are the heart of the gospel of grace. And those three titles are Savior, Christ, and Lord. Now, we would be here all week if I tried to explain those three titles. If you want to understand them, you have to read the entire uh, New Testament. It's what the whole book is, the whole uh, book of Scripture is really about. So let me just focus on one of them. The angels begin by saying, Jesus is the Savior. Rejoice. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now that word Savior has two very different meanings at the time. And the shepherds would have known this. To the Romans and to the Greeks, those were the dominant civilizations of the time, Caesar was used, the same word was used of Caesar all the time. And we have proclamations, we have coinage that has this all over it. Caesar was called the Savior of the world. We actually have announcements from this period that talk about the good news or the gospel of Caesar and that call for the celebration of his birth, which was not really a Jewish thing, it was a very Roman thing, that his birth would be celebrated because of the peace that he was bringing to the whole world, what you've heard probably called the Pax Romana. In order to justify their power and their world domination, the Romans claimed that the Caesars were the sons of God who came to give peace and prosperity to the world. Now, among the Jews, this is where this is happening, right? Among them, the word Savior had a different meaning. In their thinking, and they were quite right, uh, God alone was Savior. That word was blasphemous unless you were using it about God. And the shepherds, maybe that would have been their immediate reaction. They would have known Isaiah 43, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. The Jews despised the arrogance of their Gentile overlords, men who took names like Caesar Augustus. Augustus means divine. Or before him, Antiochus Epiphanes, who, whose name meant God manifest. To this day, Jews celebrate the defeat of Antiochus and what we call Hanukkah. The Jews rightly understood that their savior or champion was not a human king ultimately, but the Lord himself. So when the angels say to these Jewish shepherds, don't be afraid, the savior has come. He's refuting, the angel is refuting the empty self-serving propaganda of the Romans, and at the same time claiming fulfillment 
of all of God's promises to deliver his people from sin and darkness. Well, if you know the rest of the New Testament, you know the gospel story, you know how this title, this gracious title of Savior sort of plays itself out. The Jews, who are much closer to the truth, they ultimately, though, misunderstand the angelic announcement. At first, the Jews, even Jesus' disciples, believe that Jesus is going to save them from the Romans, that he's going to be a new political leader and empower them to get revenge on the nations that had been occupying their nation, that kind of savior. The secular Roman authorities, on the other hand, also confused and were very confused about this announcement and eventually decide to kill Jesus so that he cannot become a savior. They think that by publicly crucifying him at a crossroads at the busiest time of year, they will forever bury his memory. They feared that Jesus would overturn their power as he had overturned tables in the temple. Well, both Jew and Gentile were wrong about Jesus as the Savior. He is the Savior, but in a far more profound way than most people then or now understand. His death is not primarily about delivering us politically or even from a recent medical or personal crisis. He may do that. He does do that. But he has come, and the angels are saying it here, he has come to save us from the real threat, the real great threat to each one of us. He has come to save us from our sins. He has come to give us grace. Just as Gabriel told Joseph when he met with him, he told Joseph, Mary will have a son and you shall call his name Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. If you don't hit the first note, the glory note, your Christmas runs the risk of being shallow, glitzy, lightweight, However, if you don't hit this second note, the grace note, your Christmas will be truly empty. After all, what are we celebrating if not a Savior born for us? Jesus did not come simply to visit us or to show us how to behave. He came to die. He came to save a people. Jesus himself, just shortly before his death on the cross, said these words, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And so this morning we sang together, God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray, O tidings or good news of comfort and joy. Grace is the second indispensable note in the Christmas song, and it is the heart of the message. That leaves us with one last Christmas note to sound, glory, grace. Lastly, the third note is joy. Verse 10 reads, fear not, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And then later on, as you read through the passage, uh, joy, the word joy may not be used, but you can feel the joy. It's evident, isn't it? The joy of heaven 
as they shout of God's glory, the joy of the shepherds as they discover the infant. They respond with joy. They made known, verse 17, the shepherds went out in joy and made known the saying, out of joy and delight in God and in what God has done for them, these poor men preach the gospel, the good news of great joy. This whole account, doesn't it? It rings with joy. And yet, and yet some of us, okay, me, some of us, maybe you and I together, we struggle with this last note most of all. Maybe some of you are this way too. Uh, we immediately resonate, if you've been a Christian for a while, we immediately resonate with the first two notes. We feel the glory, we confess the grace, but we may, if we're being honest, struggle with this last note. We hear the angels calling all of God's people to rejoice, but we just don't find joy in ourselves or in our world. This struggle takes different shapes for each of us. For some of us, joy seems to be naively impossible, impossible until we are reunited with the one we love, the one who has gone to be with Christ. We may even feel guilty about any joy, any joy that we feel that is without that person. As I was finishing this part of the sermon, I was literally right at about this point in the sermon, and I was writing, I got in my car and I went to a funeral. I saw Nathan, Ben, and Anna mourning the sudden death of their grandfather. I knew afterwards why I was there. Yes, I was there to pray for them, see them, and their parents. But I also knew it was about the sermon too. It was about joy in sorrow. Maybe death is not the issue for you. Maybe it's the diagnosis you've received. Maybe it's the rebellion of a covenant child. Maybe it's a suffocating workplace. The point is some of us can pull off the glory note and the grace note, but we just can't get our voices up to the high note, the note of joy. Overwhelmed by the hideous strength of darkness, it seems impossible to enter into real joy. The church is without the bodily presence of its bridegroom. How can it rejoice? To those of you who feel this way, let me say, first of all, it's not wrong to mourn. The Bible actually calls us to do it. You're quite right to weep. The Psalms are full of weeping. The books of Jeremiah and Lamentations are dominated by weeping. You are right to feel that we cannot be fully happy so long as the Savior the bridegroom is bodily absent so long as the world remains in sin and rebellion. Happiness can never last in this environment. But I'm not calling you to happiness today. I'm calling you to joy. Joy is the delight of the believer in what God has done and is doing despite in the face of everything that is going wrong. Happiness floats on the surface. It's good. I like happiness. It's there when the sun is shining, when the windows are rolled down and your favorite song is playing. It floats on the air. But joy is different. Joy pierces heaven and earth. Joy is deep delight in who God is and in who God is for you and for all his people. 
The shepherds did not gain financially from this news. They did not go home to new cars, new homes, a better marriage, or a feast, or eggnog. In fact, things probably got harder for them. Their delight or joy was in something beyond what the world could offer. Happiness, happiness is sometimes easy on Christmas when we have our gifts, our food, and our family around us. It floats in the air. There's nothing wrong with having a very Merry Christmas. However, Christmas is not just a time for light feelings like happiness. It is also a time for piercing joy. When C.S. Lewis wrote his life story, his autobiography, he titled it, Surprised by Joy. He had known plenty of pleasure and happiness, and he saw nothing wrong with pleasure and happiness when used properly, biblically. But all through his life, he would get these little glimpses of something stronger, and he called that something joy. He hints at it in his autobiography when he wrote this, there is a kind of happiness and wonder, he wrote, that makes you serious. It is too good to waste on jokes. Joy is the serious business of heaven. What makes quotes like that sizzle is the fact that the man who wrote them didn't just write the book on joy, he also wrote the book on grief. When ironically, his beloved wife died at the age of 45. It cannot be an accident, since we believe in a providential God, it cannot be an accident that his wife's name was, you guessed it, Joy. A brilliant Jewish Christian and poet, Lewis had met his match in Joy, only to lose her after a relatively short marriage. And yet somehow he found Joy again. On her tombstone, he marked his hope that she would be reborn from what he called holy poverty. And he wrote these words, that having cast off stars, water, air, the whole world, she might resume them on her Easter day. This, I think, is the meaning of joy in our text. The angels are not announcing the end of all human wars or cancers or deaths. They are declaring a joy that can pierce through all those things, something sharp, something strong, something unbent. And this is my prayer for you. A Merry Christmas, yes. But more than that, I pray that in each of us there will be something stronger, more serious, and yet even more delightful. And how do we get there? Only through the song of Christmas. Only by the notes of the angelic gospel. Glory, note one, will prepare us and add weight to what we are doing. Grace, note two, will calm us and encourage us. We can come and we can worship without fear. And then and only then, the deep note, the high note of joy will be placed inside us. And then and only then can we say, I have truly celebrated Christmas this day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we hear in your word today and we see the joy of the angels at Christ's birth, we pray that something 
of that would be found in us. Something of the glory, something of the grace, something of the joy. Open up heaven through your Holy Spirit to every believer here that they might hear the celebrations that even now happen around the throne because of the greatness and the goodness of the Lamb. Fill us with love for him and make this the day of his celebration in our hearts. We pray and ask it in his name. Amen.